Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 116. April 1835 is passing swiftly and still no sign of the 75,000 head of cattle demanded by the British of the Amakosa. Hinsa remains a hostage of Benjamin Durban, although it was Colonel Harry Smith who was now looking after the king, as well as his son Sahili and the king's brother Buru. The urban had summarily annexed the troublesome region around the Stottenbach Mountains and all the way to the Cry River. That was in the north, where 150 Boer families lived. They were now automatically members of the empire. They did not want to be, and many would join a great trek being planned out of the Cape Colony. The urban had also decided to annex the territory extending all the way to the Kai River for the British and to allow the Mfengu to settle on some of this land as a buffer zone against Amakosa. By advancing the Cape Colony to the Kai, Sir Benjamin Durbin was making himself responsible for a huge chunk of southern African territory. At the time, his decision was welcomed by the settlers and the military. The dark ravines of the Kai, these high redoubts where the Amatkoza had led the British army in a goose chase, were now within his control. So to the Amatola Mountains, where Matkoma and Jali and the Koza chiefs had led him on a frustrating slow dance of angst. Those more uneasy about all of this was the British political establishment back home. Wars cost money, and the frontier war had been very expensive. The urban was sitting in his tent camped at the Kai River a few weeks later in May 1835. Colonel Harry Smith sat in his tent having dinner with Hinsa and his son Sarili. Smith was writing letters to Jonah, demeaning Hinsa, calling him a cunning rogue and a shuffling scoundrel. Hinsa was perfectly aware of these insults, his gravitas and dignity impugned on a daily basis. Smith sought humiliation by intimidation and appears to have been slightly off his rocker if you read his letters. One minute he'd be walking around the camp with Hinsa on his arm, the next he'd be railing in the chief's ear and threatening to throw him into prison on Robben Island. Hinsa was also informed of the British expansion plans. Then he was invited to watch the beneficiaries crossing into their new promised land a few days later. These were the Mfengu. The Nfengu people had been gathering in their thousands on the east bank of the Kai River on the 8th of May, 1835. These people, who had been battered by the Zulu and the Ndebele, the Nguani, forced to work as Hinsa's dogs, were close to their destination, and an astonishing and apocalyptic scene played out at dawn the next day. Hinsa, the man who had given refuge to the Nfengu, and said of them they were the Ngambamnabu, his people also, discovered they weren't. They were useful, like dogs, he said. Ironically, their very name, Mfengu, comes from Hinsa. When the people first arrived in his land, they said they were Siamfengus, destitute. The Mfengu had a name. The settlers would call them Fingo. There had been rain showers overnight at this time in May 1835. It was a cold morning. The mist hung low over the Kai River Valley as the Mfengu people began to cross, led by Colonel Henry Somerset, who was to escort them to their new home in the colony. Behind him was Hintz's nemesis, the missionary John Aleph, on his tilted wagon with his family. You remember him well if you followed this series, shepherding his flock to the promised land, as he told Hintzer he would. Dozens of wagons trailed him. Then came the 16,000 Mfengu on foot, driving 22,000 head of cattle and thousands more goats. 
Those sitting on the west bank of the Kai would have heard them first, because the mist was thick down along the river that morning, and the Mfengu emerged from the cold, dank whiteness, a dawn's spectacle complete. Men walking ahead with the cattle, followed by the young boys shoeing the goats. Behind them, the women and girls carrying their possessions on their heads. They crossed the river using long sticks for balance, and as they went, they were singing a new song called Sia Emlungwen. We're going to the land of the right people, they sang, most believing they were going to be as independent as they had been before in northern Zululand, before Zwide and Shaka's violence drove them away, almost two decades earlier. Watching this jaw-dropping scene was British officer Captain James Alexander, who wrote that as far as he was concerned, nothing like this has been seen perhaps since the days of Moses. It took all day for the 16,000 to cross, and as night fell, all that could be seen to the west was their dust cloud, the sounds of thousands drifting away in the dark. An historic moment. Another was to come shortly after. Benjamin Durbin was ready to announce his annexations in a formal process. The next day, 10th of May, 1835, he ordered his troops to draw up in a large parallelogram facing inwards. This was the standard British ceremonial structure. When the soldiers formed up like that, they knew it was going to be a major announcement or an important visitor was imminent. The artillerymen were waiting there, splattering matches ready, while Hinsa, Sarheli and Bru were marched from their tents to the centre of this parade. All were grave, but showed no fear. Smith and Durbin stood in the centre of this parade, staring to the west. Durbin announced in a clear, ringing voice that the Kai River was the new eastern boundary of the Cape Colony, and as he spoke his voice echoed off the cliffs nearby, adding to the cacophony of terrible information in the minds of Hinsa, his son and his brother. Apparently a troop of baboons just happened to have taken up their position on nearby cliffs, adding to the unreal spectacle. There was an attentive audience. Until the 21-gun salute was fired by the artillerymen and the baboons scampered off, the three cheers for King William ringing in their ears as they departed. The guns shrouded the parade in smoke, and slowly Hinsa's unmoved form was glimpsed through this shroud like a ghost. For de Urban, this was an almost revolutionary decision, and it wouldn't only be the Amatoza who totally against it. His government almost went into a paroxysm when they heard what he'd done, there is a propensity to believe that the British were always happy to seize South African land, but I'm afraid it was often the case that local officials tended to take the side of the colonials rather than listen to British politicians thousands of miles away. The Americans had gone through a similar process before they threw off the shackles of the empire. The urban announced that land between the Kaiskama and Kai rivers would now be part of what he called the province of Queen Adelaide. A new military town would be its headquarters, named after King William. Of course, it was King William's town. The centre would be built on the site of John Brownlee's ruined mission, and it's here that Harry Smith would set up his centre of operations to finish off the Sixth Frontier War. Patu and his Tonukwebe would be the only chief allowed to remain in the territory. All other chieftains had to take their people and head east across the river, the Kai. Except, of course, for the Mfengu, who are now well and truly on their way into the Cape Colony. With that, Durban broke camp and headed back west in the direction of Cape Town, following the Mfengu, and taking Hinsa's son Sarili and the brother Buru with him. Colonel Smith headed off in the opposite direction with his men and with Hinsa, 
The king was supposed to direct the British soldiers to where the settlers' cattle could be found. He was going to do nothing of the sort. By daylight on the 12th of May, Smith was beginning to smell a rat. Hinsa had been closely watched by the Corps of Guides, led by one of the more felt-aware English settlers called George Southey. At one point, another guide called Caesar Andrews had drawn his gun because Hinsa suddenly dismounted his horse and walked up a hill. Was he trying to escape? No, the Corsa chief mounted his horse once more and trotted up to where Harry Smith was, followed by the guides, of course. Then Hinsa rode off into a thicket. Smith pulled out his own gun, shouted, Hinsa, stop! and the chief emerged from the thicket smiling. But moments later, the chief spurred his horse and galloped away across the open country towards a nearby village. Smith galloped after him, and after a mile chase caught up with the Tlaza king. Hinsa lashed out at Smith with his assegai. Smith threw his pistol at the chief. It had jammed. Smith managed to tackle Hinsa from his horse, grabbing him by the throat as they both fell. The corps of guides had caught up as Hinsa struggled free. Smith shouted, Shoot, George! And George opened fire, hitting Hinsa in the leg. The chief stumbled, but got back on his feet, ran forward. Southey fired again, hit Hinsa in the back. He fell, but managed to stagger onto his feet once more and somehow reached a thicket alongside a small river near the village. Southey, along with Smith's aide-de-camp, Lieutenant Paddy Balfour, and some coy troops headed down to the river. Sadi was clambering over the rocks when an assegai pinged the water close by. He saw Hinsa. The chief stood up and said, Mercy, in Tlaza, to Sadi, who spoke fluent Tlaza. But there would be no mercy. Sadi shot Hinsa in the head, killing him. What followed, dear listener, is beyond good taste to tell in full. Let's just say that Hinsa's body was ransacked. His brass ornaments taken by Sadi. Others grabbing what they could before George and his brother William cut off Hinsa's ears. One of the settler guides, called Henry James Halzer, was sick to his stomach and wrote, This was a very wrong and barbarous thing to do. He did not try and stop the mutilation. Another settler provisional soldier, called Captain William Gilfillan, went further. Later he sat alone in his tent that night and wrote in his journal that the guides had allowed their insatiable thirst of possessing a relic of so great a man to get the better of their humanity and better feeling, which teaches us not to trample on a fallen foe. Harry Smith was some distance away when this was going on. He issued orders for Hintz's body to be recovered with a carros and brought up to him. The British troops were busy doing this when he sent another message saying they should merely drop the Tlaza king where he fell. His followers would find the body, said Smith, for the better, he believed. Anyway, he didn't have any shovels, as he would tell an inquiry later into the Tlaza king's death. That was a lie. His men had bayonets and shovels and could easily have done the right thing. Smith did not even allow the Tlaza king a proper burial of a soldier, something he'd done his whole life. Thus terminated the career of the chief Hinsa, he wrote in his official report. Whose treachery, perfidy, and want of faith made him worthy of a nation of atrocious and indomitable savages over whom he was acknowledged chieftain, he followed up. I'm sure you can identify with a certain callous contradiction. The fact that the British had acted in a savage, perfidious, treacherous, atrocious manner completely eluded Smith, who then had the tone-deaf, outrageously self-serving affront to send his lovely wife Joanna some of Hintz's bracelets and his assegai as a kind of bloody love souvenir. What Smith did not realize was his masters back in England did not think that murdering the chief of the Amakosa was a very clever thing to do. This was not an act of war. It was cold-blooded murder, 
a war crime in today's parlance. By the time Smith had returned to the governor's camp and then wrote his report, some bits of information went missing. The most important bit that Hintzer had his hands in the air and was pleading for mercy just before he was shot a third and final time was left out. Smith also failed to mention that the king's corpse was robbed and mutilated. The governor was very angry when he was shown what some of his men called Hintzer's curiosity, i.e., his ears and bracelets. Durbin was fully aware of what would happen when the colonial secretary, John Bell, got to hear of this terrible incident. Everyone was tainted by the act. It's amazing how much trouble a misplaced word can cause, and for Durbin it would be the phrase irreclaimable. He was a most irreclaimable and treacherous villain, wrote Durbin in his report for the colonial secretary, John Bell. He'd done this before, using the same phrase when he announced the annexation of the country all the way to the Kai River. The mutilation was impossible to hide from the broader public, however, and all hell broke loose. Henry James Halser, the settler, was disgusted, so disgusted that he described the mutilation of Hintzer to his father in a letter, and his father showed Dr. Ambrose Campbell, one of the only three doctors in Grahamstown, this letter, and Dr. Campbell's close friend was another unusual settler called Charles Lennox Stretch, who was also horrified. Then Harry Smith's aide-de-camp, Lieutenant Balfour, warned Smith that the truth had come out, and Smith told him to hold his tongue and not contradict the report. The wheels were coming off this bunch, and quite quickly. A man who'd made a name for himself fighting with honour against Napoleon was about to find his name besmirched. By late May, Colonial Secretary Bell sent a warning to de Urban that there were rumours during the rounds about Hintz's murder and pointed out that he hoped Smith's report was accurate. Shortly after the event, Sarili and Buru were told of Hintz's death. A long and rambling account was repeated to them as they gazed expressionless at de Urban. Even the translator appeared unmoved. De Urban was so shocked by the response that he ordered the translator to repeat back to him the convoluted story because he was convinced they hadn't understood but the man repeated the details back, word perfect, repeating not only every word, but every nuance. The colonials had remarked earlier about how the Amakosa could receive a long message, travel for hundreds of miles and for days on end, then deliver that message correctly despite not being able to write. They didn't have to be able to write or read to pick up that Hinsa had been shot in cold blood and then mutilated. De Urban turned to Sorelli, the new regent of the Amakosa, and told him about the annexation of land. He would be sent home, but Buru would join De Urban for a trip to Cape Town, and Sarhili's uncle paled, no longer impassive. He believed he was going to be killed like Hinsa. While all of this was going on, up on the higher ground in the Amatolas, peace moves were afoot, and as usual it was the powerful Kosa woman who led the negotiations. On the 11th of May, Nrika's widow, Sutu, sent a message to British Commander Major William Cox, asking for a wagon to be sent to fetch her. She was a queen, after all, and apparently a large woman to boot. Cox did so, and that very afternoon, at 4pm, she appeared before Cox, after climbing off the wagon, watched by Charles Lennox Stretch. Cox had had enough of being led on a wild goose chase around the Amatolas, and told Sutu to tell Makoma and Charlie to surrender, or he'd go after the entire nation, men, women, and children. The British had already gone after the entire nation, but Sutu was tired of the bloodletting that was destroying her people. She passed on the message to Makoma and Charlie, who listened to Sutu, and the next day the chief showed up at Cox's camp 
to be met by a hastily arranged guard of honour, fifty Khoi Khoi cavalry lined up. But Matkoma and Charlie had heard what happened to Khoza chiefs when they arrived at a British camp. It was hostage-taking, followed shortly afterwards by murder, so they remained out of sight and said Sutu should brief them. Cox, in traditional British Empire rage mode, railed against the two, then sent brandy to warm them up. Matkoma apparently drank too much. Cox couldn't talk to him, and that night the two Khoza chiefs disappeared once more. Cox made a point of continuing to attack the homesteads of the Amatolas, burning down every garden and kraal, while the Khoza warriors hid in the thick bush, stabbing British troops passing by. A no-win situation had developed. On June the 1st, 1835, Smith led a force of 2,000 regular British soldiers, colonials, Boers and enlisted Khoikhoi, as well as the Mfengu and Kunukwebu warriors, back into the Amatolas to follow up these attacks. Over the next few days, thousands more huts were burned, immense stores of corn were destroyed, but the war did not end. The Khoza continued attacking the British. And things were bad for the invading force. You see, in June, a British patrol was ambushed on the slopes of the Amatolas. The 30 men there fought until their ammunition ran out, then fought on with their rifle butts. Finally, all 30 were killed by the Khoza. It was the single biggest military loss for Smith and Durban since the start of the Sixth Frontier War. This was a guerrilla war and it wasn't over. The British began redeveloping forts throughout the western region of the Kaiskama. Month after month, on it went. No one was safe from the Amatkoza, who had taken to ambushing the British, then melting away. On the 19th of July, Major Cox was still in the Amatolas, reporting that the Khoza were watching his patrol so openly that their signal fires could be seen across the range. The little earth forts of the British were surrounded. At one of these, a soldier went out for firewood without his rifle. He was dead in minutes. Around Grahamstown and across the Fish River into Albany, it was dangerous to pass from farm to farm, and the British could do very little about this chaos. The outlying forts were suffering from food shortages, while the soldiers' uniforms were ripped into rags. By August, men had no shoes in some of these units. Most Boers had also returned to their farms by now, or they'd have been bankrupted. The Khoikhoi troops pressed into service began to complain more loudly as well. Their crops also needed tending. The colonial force called the Provisionals were disgruntled. It was a miserable army that faced Amakosa. There was backbiting galore, made worse by settler race politics. The Boers refused to sit and have dinner with the bastard leaders and the Khoikhoi at the same table when invited by Harry Smith. They also refused to do any manual labour, saying that was only for blacks and Englishmen. In one memorable incident, twelve Boers were standing idly by, passing comment about three Scotsmen who were sweating as they dug a ditch. Eventually, the three Scotsmen leapt out of their ditch and, in typical Scots manner, beat up the twelve Boers, giving them a right good drubbing, noted the Governor Durban. Perhaps one or two Glaswegian kisses were doled out too. Boer versus Brit versus Coy versus Settler versus Tosa. How very modern this tale. De Ehrman was also beginning to fret about something else. The total incompetence of the military establishment in Grahamstown, led by Henry Somerset and the man you've met before, Duncan Campbell. These two imbeciles hated each other. There was no remedy for their stupidity. At least, that's what de Ehrman wrote. Luckily for all these bickering blokes, humans are political animals. Everyone needed a scapegoat, and their eyes settled on missionary James Reed. Ah, it must be the Liberals' fault. 
Smith and the colonists launched what these days we would call a troll-laden fake news campaign, blaming him for starting the war. Behind the scenes, gentle listener, a quick reality update. Smith convinced Urban that Reed had also sold the Clauser gunpowder. They had no evidence. Oddly enough, however, they had evidence that practically everyone else was selling ammo to the Clauser before the Sixth Frontier War. For example, British settlers who'd become traders, then renegade boers like Louis Trichard, Koi Koi defectors, and even members of the British military themselves. An ordnance storekeeper in Grahamstown had explained how 500 barrels of gunpowder had gone to the Clauser before the war. The conspirators were two British soldiers employed to arrange ordinances. One was a sergeant, the other a captain. Major William Cox, the man of the Amatolis, told Smith he had tracked the supplies of arms and ammunition to the Clauser, and these came from traders with links to Cape Town merchants. What did these Cape Town merchants care The frontier was virtually a million miles away in their minds. They had imported cheap arms that were old, specifically with the aim of selling them to Matroma and Charlie's chiefs, right under the noses of the British. But these very same corrupt men and probably women needed a goat to scape. Reed's influence in the Cut River settlement, the Khoi farming region, meant he was sinister and traitorous. He had been removed from there, but still the dark commentary flowed like an acidic river. This biased rampage against Reed was going to backfire spectacularly, as you'll hear. It involved Urban's liberal use of the word, irreclaimable savage. What to you and I appears just to be a phrase, back in those days this was unacceptable jargon. Into this mounting pool of cess leapt humanitarian John Philip. An intense antipathy developed between him and Urban, worsened by a letter Philip wrote in June 1835, lambasting the governor for calling the Amakosa irreclaimable. By doing so, de Urban appeared to be an extremist, saying that the Amakosa souls could not be saved. Poor de Urban was no match for Philip. Drafting a letter defending his comments destined for the Earl of Aberdeen's eyes, the Secretary of the Colonies. Little did he know that two months earlier the Earl had been booted out of office. He'd been replaced by Lord Glenelg, a.k.a. Charles Grant, ardent philanthropist and friend of Fowl Buxton who helped ban slavery. The short end of this stick was firmly in Durban's sweaty grasp and he was forced to change his orders. The Amatosa were now welcome back somewhere in the Amatolas and somewhere across the Kaiskama. Details to follow. Durban Smith et al. must negotiate, demanded Lord Glenelg. So on the 15th of August, 1835, William Cox met Matkoma and Charlie in the bush of the Amatolas. This time, the two were surrounded by 600 Koza warriors. After some nervous minutes, as you can imagine, Matkoma and Charlie agreed the war should end. Cox said the government did not want to dwell on past grievances from either side. The Koza chiefs asked for more details about what land they'd get back. Cox said he didn't know, but a truce was agreed, and Matkoma and Charlie both gave Cox a royal assegai to take back to the governor as a token of peace. Would things be so simple? But they aren't. So Benjamin de Urban then committed a cardinal error of negotiations. He read Matkoma and Charlie's actions as an unconditional surrender by the Amatosa and ordered Cox, Captain James Alexander, and Charles Lennox Stretch to meet with the chiefs and read them the riot act. The officers duly pitched up at the ruined mission of Burns Hill alongside a wide valley through which the Kaskama River flows. It was within sight of Enrique's grave chosen by Makoma and Charlie for a significant bit of theatre. 
When the British officers arrived, they were startled to find themselves in the middle of a huge group of Amakosa warriors, close to 6,000. Many were armed with muskets, and a considerable portion were mounted. The Amakosa now had cavalry, which trotted in perfect discipline to their allotted spot, in full view of the astonished British. After being told to surrender for months, because his warriors were starving, Makoma couldn't resist a bit of dry humour. He asked the British that they should not be alarmed at seeing so many warriors assembled. They brought them together merely to show you how many Koza are dying of hunger, he said, deadpan. Then, like any European general, Makoma rode stiffly past his troops on formation, on a crisp white horse, inspecting each troop gravely. He was wearing the clothes of a dead British officer, just to rub it in. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head up to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me. There's a form there or through Twitter directly at deslatham. No blue tick. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.